Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Today we're going to talk about living as stars, and no, we're not going to uh, be dancing with the stars, or talk about Hollywood or any of that stuff. For thousands of years, the stars have intrigued man. They've also guided him in his journeys. When I was a young teenager as a Boy Scout, one of the first things you learn is how to locate Polaris in the night sky so that you can know which way is true north. Later, when I became a Navy midshipman, I had to take classes in navigation, which included celestial navigation, so that we could go out and be on the ships at night and using a, a sextant, take star sightings to figure out the angles of where the stars were, where the sun was, and locate and pinpoint our place upon the ocean at sea. The stars are very important, have been important for thousands of years to help guide the way, to, to show the way to men and women. Today we're going to be focusing on a passage in Philippians 2, and it's not the passage, the first part, which, which most of us are, are very, very familiar with, but in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16, we're going to use that as our, our basic passage today. The Apostle Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, we could stop right there and probably preach a couple series of sermons on that, couldn't we? <laughs> Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. We're in a series entitled Living Life in a Winsome Way, and we're looking at how to live our lives as Jesus followers in an attractive or appealing way, one that draws people to Jesus, not repels them from Jesus. The biblical call to make disciples is the main reason why the people of God are here on planet Earth. We're here to bear witness to his mercy and grace, and to show forth his glory in our lives to those who have not yet experienced him. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave instructions to the disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus told his followers that the primary focus that, that you and I are to have as the people of God on earth is those who do not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Focus on them becoming disciples. Jesus made it abundantly clear that when he came into this world, it was for a mission. 
It was to destroy Satan's work in the lives of people, and by that we mean sin, darkness, destruction, and spiritual death. In 1 John 3.8, in the NIV, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, this goes all the way back. It's harkening all the way back to Genesis 3. We, we talked about in our last sermon series about we live in a Genesis 3 world, a world that has been affected by the fall. When the man and woman chose to ignore God's commandment, they chose to listen instead to the, the appeal of the serpent that in the day you eat, you're going to become like God. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. Because the day that you eat thereof, you shall be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And here we are thousands of years later, and we still have the same desire. We want to decide what's right and what's wrong, and not follow what God says is right and wrong. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. If this hadn't happened, there would be no song of the ransomed, for we would still be in bondage to sin and to death. The bottom line is Jesus came to confront, to defeat sin and death, those powers on our behalf. And that's what he did on the cross. Right before Jesus went to the cross, shortly before that, he was in a, he was in a home. He's in the home of Zacchaeus having dinner that night. And he said, the Son of Man came to save those who are lost. This belief in what Jesus has called us to do, you know, I, I think it's a big deal. This, this belief that Jesus calls us to make disciples. It's a big deal. It's something that we should all know. But I think it's even more important that we obey it. These marching orders are given to all of God's followers in all times and in all cultures. And this is non-negotiable. This is who we are. It's what we are called to do. If you've been a Jesus follower for any amount of time, you've probably memorized these words. We, we call it the Great Commission, and we're, we're good at putting it on plaques and putting it up on, on, on walls or, or on Jesus junk in the stores uh, that, we, that sell that stuff and all. And we're great at looking at the words and reading the words. But you need to understand that we're actually called to do this, not just memorize it. Oh, you want me to make disciples? Yes. We are to actually make disciples. And the reason I say that so forcefully this morning is we're not really doing it. A 2015 Barna Group study found that only 20% of Christian adults are involved in some sort of discipleship activity. And this includes a wide range of activities such as attending Sunday school or a small group meeting with a spiritual mentor, studying the Bible with a group, or reading a, or discussing a Christian book with a group, where would you be on this chart? In the 20% or in the 80% that are doing nothing with regard to discipleship? What about disciple-making? Is the kingdom of God expanded because your life has attracted someone in such a way that they have become a Jesus follower in the last year? In the last three years? In the last five years? Ever? 
I'm not trying to throw guilt on you. I'm trying to make you think. Because it's not just about memorizing words, even though it's scripture. It's about obeying the command. We call those marching orders. I'm a military guy. Most of you know that. When you have a mission, when you have your marching orders, what do you do? You obey them. You, you get the mission done. When I told my children to clean their rooms, I didn't say, I want you to come back to me in a week and I want you to recite to me what I told you to do. I actually expected that they would pick up the clothes and that at some point in the near future, I'd be able to see the floor. <laughs> These are marching orders. They're non-negotiable. We have no choice in this. When you and I become followers of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit takes a presence in our lives, we're made spiritually alive to God and dead to sin. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, we become living, breathing, walking miracles of grace put on display for his glory. That's supposed to be contagious. When the Spirit of God comes to live in us, we experience his nature. We experience the nature of Christ, and he, as he comes to live in us by his Spirit, we experience this, this inner transformation. Jesus says to his followers in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This isn't an artificial light like we have with our flashlights or our fluorescent uh, fixtures. This is the light, the light of the world. Our experience with Christ is to, is to actually get involved and, and, and to be, have his nature be a part of our lives so that it will draw people to the light. Secondly, we grow in his likeness. We grow in his likeness. The more we come to know him and the more we mature, the more people can see Jesus in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And last week, we talked about this glory in our message. And if you missed that one, it's available on podcast or on CD, check with our office. It's God's glory. We are supposed to reflect God's glory, the glory of the face of Christ. You and I, each one of us has a sphere of influence, and we're called to make a difference, to shine for him within that sphere of our relationships. Our lives are to be a witness to this knowledge of Christ. And the biblical connotation of a witness is, is someone who has a story to tell, someone that can, has experienced something and they can tell about that. And I don't know about you, but when you think about the word witness, many people think about different things. Maybe you think about two young guys riding around on, on bicycles and white shirts and ties and getting doors slammed in their faces. Maybe you think about a, a soul winning seminar where someone was teaching you how to lead somebody to Christ who's sitting next to you in the airplane between Seattle and Palm Springs. Or maybe you read the book, How to Win Souls, and you say, well, that doesn't really work for me. If witnessing makes your palms sweaty and, and keeps you from sleeping the night before you're supposed to tell somebody your story, I don't think you really understand or have it down in terms of what God's really after. Maybe what would be the very best thing to do as we start today is to relieve you of some of the burden, relieve you of the guilt, remove the guilt motivation, because we shouldn't be witnessing, we shouldn't be telling our story out of guilt Witnessing to people should be a natural outgrowth of our love of God. 
When I'm talking about my grandchildren, I don't feel any guilt motivation or burden about that because I love my grandchildren. Ask me to see the pictures. You know, I have, in fact, you probably don't even have to ask me. I'll probably show you the pictures anyway if we're talking about my grandkids. When I'm talking about my love for my wife, Lou, 40 plus years of loving one woman, I don't have any guilt about that. That's not a burden for me. It's the constraint of my heart to love my grandkids and to love my wife and to tell people about that love. And we're called, those of us that are, that are Jesus followers, we're called to have a passion for Jesus and love people within our sphere of influence. Our role is simply to introduce two people to one another who don't know each other yet. That's all witnessing is, introducing two people that may not know each other yet. We're called to speak to one another out of the abundance of what we cherish in our hearts. And I believe that's what's behind Peter's words that he writes in 1 Peter 3.15 where he says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That's where it starts. Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And let me say with all charity, I've been on the other end of this early, early, early in my life. And Christians don't always do this with gentleness and respect. And there's a lot of people that are pushed away from Jesus, they're pushed away from the church because of well-meaning Christians that are in your face and they don't have the love motivating them. Love for God and love for the person that they're speaking to. And I tell you, folks can smell that a mile away. It's easy to see. It's easy to see the person's just looking at the person they're talking to as one more notch in their Bible belt. So they can go back and brag to the preacher, hey, you know, I led another one to the Lord. You know, sometimes, I'm, let, me, let me tell you something. There's some folks, they'll say yes or they'll pray that sinner's prayer with you just to get you off their back. It's what happens. And as a result, we don't make disciples. Jesus talked to the Pharisees of his time, and he said, you'll travel to the ends of the earth to find a convert, and you'll make them twice as fit for hell as you are. Those are harsh words, folks. This is Jesus saying them, not me. And we need to search, and we need to see, do they apply to us today? Or are we sharing our story of Jesus with love? with goodness, with gentleness, and respect. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 about the constraints of love for Christ. It says, for Christ's love compels us, compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Who are you living for? Are you living for yourself? Are you living for the one who gave his life for you so that he could give his life to you in order that he might live his life through you? The constraint of love is simply you're telling somebody you love about Jesus whom you love and who loves them. You're seeking to make an introduction. So how can we set this up? Well, Let's look again at Philippians 2. We're called to live as stars in a dark world. 
It says in verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Paul basically tells the church at Philippi, and he tells us as well, watch your words and guard your tone. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I don't know about you, but that steps on my toes. That hurts. That challenges me. And the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally given is is rich with meaning. It uses words that are so pinpoint accurate that we have a hard time translating into English. And and these two words, complaining and arguing, really don't carry the whole whole pathos, the whole emotion of what's being said here. If I were to give you a literal rendering of what is being expressed here, a better rendering would be this. Do everything without murmuring or questioning the providence of God. Whoa. These things should be avoided at all costs in the life of someone who seeks to be a follower of Jesus. Murmuring or or, or questioning God's care or provision. Why? Because complaining shows that we don't really trust and have faith in God. Something isn't going my way and it's not the way I think it should go or my preferences aren't being honored. Therefore, I get upset. I want everybody to know how upset I am. We murmur, we grumble, and it betrays a lack of trust in God's care for us. And we need to get this because people who do not know Jesus yet are watching to see if your testimony of faith in Jesus is matched by the love of Jesus flowing through you to other people, even people that you may disagree with. They're watching, and they want to know, is your Christianity something that's just skin deep? Is it nonsense? Or does it impact the way that you actually live? The bottom line is people are watching. What Paul says is we need to get our eyes off of our present circumstances and get them on our Christ. He'll grant you the faith and the power to trust the Father in deep, reverent love and holy fear, even when it's not going the way that you think it ought to go. Our job is to shine with the light of Jesus. You and I are called to shine his light in a dark world. Jesus went to the cross and it was awful. It was painful, but it was the will of the Father for his life. Yes, he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. Not my will, nevertheless, but your will be done. That's why the writer to Hebrews in chapter 12 says this. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our job is to reflect the attitude and the actions of Jesus. And notice where we're supposed to live the attitudes and actions of Jesus. Paul says in the midst of a society with a bent towards moral evil. Remember, it's a Genesis 3 world that we're in. Yes, the redemption has begun, but until Jesus comes again, the redemption of the world will not be complete when he makes the new earth and the new heavens and bring them to pass. Two words here additionally need to be flushed out. This word crooked. Crooked means to be willfully bent away from the intended design. And that's what our world is. It's a crooked world. It's bent away from God's intended design. 
That's why it's a Genesis 3 world. That's why it's a sin-fallen world. And depraved, depraved means immoral to the core, unable to do the right thing. People for whom right is wrong and wrong is right. Paul tells us that we're called to live as stars, showing the way, guiding the way in a sin-depraved and dark culture. Now, we can sit around and complain about the culture all day, but does that shine the light? No, it doesn't shine the light. Something wonderful happens when when God's people lay down our petty differences and we stop murmuring and and we stop complaining. I'm at the time of the year where I'm, I'm finishing up the first five books of the Bible in my annual reading of the Bible, and I just began Deuteronomy this week. And over the last two months, I've read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And did you know that it records 66 times, 51 verses, that the Israelites murmured against Moses and God? Next time you want to complain, go back and see how that worked for them. (laughs) Think about it. Two and a half million people. Two and a half million people living in tents in the wilderness. I've been in leadership since I was a teenager practically, and I think about the, the, the job that Moses had there. And when I'm having problems in leadership, of course, I never have any problems here at Sky Valley. But when I have problems in leadership, I think back to Brother Moses. Man, the dude never quit. He never gave up. Even when God was ready to say, I'll just wipe him out and start over with you, Moses. What did Moses do? He interceded for the people. Two and a half million people, can you imagine them standing at the flaps of their tent, complaining and murmuring? Maybe you go to the pool sometime and you get a taste of that. <laughs> now here's the deal. When you and I lay down our petty differences and we love one another, even those with whom we disagree, we show the world that Jesus is alive and that he lives within the midst of his people. Stars stand out in contrast against the dark sky. Stars have the dark space behind them. That's why you notice stars up there. And people are supposed to be able to see a contrast that there is something different in the followers of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us three word pictures that describe how we're supposed to be within our culture. He says in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Salt, light, city on a hill. Salt influences soup or other foods. Light influences darkness, and a city on a hill influences a traveler because the traveler can see where it is they're trying to get to. They see a welcoming place where they can stop for the night. And it says, if Jesus is saying to you and me, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, you're the city on the hill, I love you. I live in you. I want to transform you so that people can see something different, so that you add flavor to life, so that you add flavor within the world. Verse 16 of Philippians 2, living out the word of life. 
He says, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. You see, there's a big difference between reading and doing the written word and experiencing the living word that makes the written word alive. As I mentioned earlier, every person in whom the Spirit of God has taken up residence is a living miracle of grace. You've become a supernatural entity fueled by the love and the Spirit and the power of God. And what Paul understood and was seeking to help us understand is that the eternal word, the Son of God, has come to live in simple, ordinary human hearts like yours and mine. And he makes the Scripture spring to life. The living word makes the written word alive. In John 6, 63, it says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Jesus' words enliven us. They fill us with life. They bring life to us. James 1.18 says this. It says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, first fruits isn't necessarily a word that, that we use. Again, it's one of those words that, that you find when you're reading the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the beginning, whenever God gives them the, the directions for the festivals and you're supposed to bring the first fruits to the Lord. We don't necessarily use that kind of word outside biblical context. But let me, let me ask him, if, if there's first fruits, what does that sound like? There's more fruits, okay? I don't know if that's proper, but there's other fruit. In other words, the first fruit is just the first thing to come along, but there's, there's going to be a lot more. The harvest comes after the first fruit. You bring the first fruit, but then comes the harvest. And you're not the only fruit. If you're a Jesus follower, you're not the only fruit. There's supposed to be more fruit following along. That's the point I'm trying to make. And it's important for us to understand that. The church has a lot of fruit inspectors, I've found over the years. You ever seen, run across those people? Their job is to inspect everybody else's fruit, except their own. But, you know, we're not supposed to be fruit inspectors. We're supposed to be fruit producers. We're supposed to allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives so that we multiply and there's more fruit that comes forth. Let God be the fruit inspector. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting and do that stuff. It's so important for us to understand the progression of truth that, that we're trying to see here. The living word is the presence of the spirit of Jesus dwelling in simple and ordinary people. It's not just know your Bible, do your Bible. It's not just know the word, do the word. There's more to it than that. It's a relationship with the living word of God burning like a fire within our hearts. And Paul wants us to understand this, this progression. First, we hear the word of God. And the manner in which you hear, the manner in which I hear the word of God is everything, the heart that you bring to it. I know that there's a lot of teachers here. Those of you that are teachers, you understand that you can only do so much. It depends upon the attitude your student brings to the class, whether or not they're going to learn or not. And so you want to create an attitude in your student where they want to learn. There's only so much that teachers can do, though. It depends upon the parents, depends upon so many other things, it depends upon the other kids in the class. And that's why teaching is such a hard thing in our schools. It's the attitude that they bring. If you bring a hungry heart to the word, I promise you he'll feed it. But if you bring an apathetic heart, if you bring a half-hearted heart, I promise that you're not going to hear much from God's word. The heart attitude we bring is vital. 
We receive the word. We say to him, yes, I want you to speak to me. I'm hearing. I'm listening. This is what you're saying. Then we believe the word. It's actually for me. We take it in. We, We make it part of our being. Jesus, you want this to be alive in me. And finally, we obey. We do what the living word is asking us to do. Too many people, I believe, read their Bibles for the wrong reason. They read it so they can check off those little blocks and say, well, I went through the Bible again this year. I've read through the Bible 25 times. Okay, how's it affected your life? I'd rather, I'd rather have one chapter, one verse of the Bible that's being lived out in my life than to know, be able to memorize it cover to cover. We're to be living examples of Christ, not just robots, you know, not just Alexa that can re- re- repeat it to you. What we need to see is this. We're told to shine like stars in the universe. We're, we hold out the word to openly display it when it impacts our character, when it impacts our decision-making. It changes the way that we think about people, the way we talk to people. We hold out the word to open display when it's a part of our everyday decision-making in life. Our job is to look at the scriptures as they really are, the the revelation of the Spirit of God, giving his people the experience of grace, the miracle of life change, pointing to a relationship with Jesus that's alive and vital. And what I'm trying to help you see today is that as we choose to do this, as we hold out this word of life, the living word makes the written word alive. And as we live it, we help other people to see it We help other people to see Jesus, to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, and ultimately to experience Jesus. When we tell people our story, this is what Jesus is doing in me, or when they just observe it in our lives, they have an opportunity to hear the Spirit of God actually transforming a life. And that can become a place where the Spirit of God can begin to work in their lives too. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.